0: Nearly there. Let me ask you a question. Uh, would you say you're a proud person? I'm guessing most of us would say no. Uh, but let me probe a little deeper. Uh, do you ever trip up a stair or, or a crack in the, in the footpath and then quickly look around to see if anybody notices? Uh, Or have you ever said or done something embarrassing, people laugh, and then you just wish the ground would open up and swallow you? Uh, Or maybe let's flip it around. Have you ever achieved something significant and then when no one else notices or uh, congratulates you, you're secretly disappointed? Uh, Or have you ever had that nightmare of standing up in front of a group of people to give a speech and then you realise that you're naked? We all do it, we may not call it pride, but we don't like to feel foolish uh, in front of other people. We don't like to be ashamed, we like instead to be respected. And then there are comparisons with other people. If we're honest, uh, we all have areas of our life where we think we're better than other people. Uh, You may not be competitive at sport, but perhaps for you it's cooking or making friends or interior decorating or giving generously, or your physical appearance, or your strength, uh, or how often you attend church, or how well you play a musical instrument. Uh, Perhaps you even think you're doing better at other people at being humble. Well, it's pride, isn't it? Uh, We all suffer from pride. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, writing in the 4th century, said that pride is the beginning of sin. He was thinking of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was pride that caused Satan to rebel against God in the first place. And then he tempted Eve with pride as well. Uh, Tempted her to question God. Did God really say? That's coming from pride. Uh, They thought they knew better than God. And I think it's true that pride is at the root of our sin as well. Every sinful action begins with pride. An attitude that says, I'm more important than God, I'll do what I want. Uh, Or maybe even pride compared to other people. Uh, I deserve this. I matter more than that person. My happiness matters more than that person. My time matters more than that person so I can be impatient or lose my temper. I'm going to choose to please myself rather than others. Uh, It's human. Uh, We all suffer from pride. It may be our way, but it's not God's way. Pride works against the things of God. What we see in this passage, and in fact lots of other parts of the Bible, is that God delights in using the weak and the least and the last. He always has. And his way is to bring down proud people and lift up humble people and to take away any confidence in human independence and self-sufficiency. We see it all the way through the Bible. Jacob, God chose Jacob instead of Esau, even though he was the younger. He chose Israel. Why did he choose Israel? Because they were the fewest of all people. They were small and insignificant. He chose Gideon. Do you remember the story? Gideon is a mighty warrior, God said. The angel said, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior and Gideon was hiding in a hole in the ground at the time. And then when Gideon assembles his army, God sends 90% of them home uh, lest the army becomes proud when they win uh, the victory. He chose David to be king, the youngest and smallest of the brothers, because God doesn't look at outward appearance. There's even a quote from Isaiah 29 in today's passage. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In its context in Isaiah, it's about how he will put an end to Judah's enemies who are proud. They looked unstoppable. God's people seemed helpless, but God's way was to turn that upside down, to work with the small and insignificant so that people would trust God rather than themselves. On we marched through the Bible. God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Uh, No background, no royal birth, placed in a manger, uh, insignificant and unnoticed. And Mary praised God and said, My soul glorifies God because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Jesus grew up. Jesus proclaimed his Father's heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, said Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. In other words, God delights to work with weak and humble and mourning people and then to lift them up and give them his kingdom. And then because Jesus believed that, he walked that path himself. He chose arrest and ridicule and injustice and weakness and death. But God turned that around, raised him to life and so God lifts us up as well and gives us life. God again and again uses the humiliating defeat for his purposes and brings joy out of sadness and strength out of weakness and victory out of defeat. That's the the glorious news of the Gospel, isn't it? Uh, It's what we celebrate and rejoice in. But most of our friends, most people out there, they just don't understand that. They don't see anything glorious about it. it. It just seems foolish. It just seems weak. That's what Paul says in verse 18 at the start of our passage. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There are two groups of people when it comes to the gospel. One group sees foolishness and weakness in the cross, the other group sees power over sin and death. One group says, Christianity, it's just a crutch for the weak. But the other group says, exactly, that's what I love, because I'm weak and I need a crutch. And that's exactly the way God planned it. His way frustrates the wise and the impressive. They just don't get it. You can't discover God by having a high IQ. Uh, The problem solving skills of a mathematician won't help you. Uh, You won't discover God because you've donated the most money or performed the most good works. Academics, mystics, philosophers and thinkers are no better off. In fact, they're probably actually worse off when they try to come to God with their own understanding. Do you see what verse 21 says? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know God. Human wisdom on its own is a dead end when it comes to understanding God, to receiving him. But look at uh, the rest of the verse. Look at the way God has chosen to do things. Instead, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In God's wisdom, he uses foolish, weak, simple preaching about a foolish, weak death to powerfully and effectively save people. It's nonsense from an earthly point of view, but I love it. I love it because it forces me as a foolish preacher to take my eyes off myself and keep them on the God who saves. On the one hand it encourages me when I'm feeling hopeless and like I'm doing nothing of any good because God is doing stuff. Uh, On the other hand it humbles me when I'm overconfident, when I'm looking at myself too much, uh, when I'm overconfident in my own ability. God uses foolish words about a foolish cross to powerfully save people. And look at what's so foolish about the message in the world's eyes. Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks demand wisdom. We could add Aussies demand, well, what do Aussies demand? Scientific proof, relevance, rationality. Life empowerment, freedom of choice, improvement in the quality of my life. They're all good human motivations. But verse 23 says, We preach Christ crucified. goes against all of that, doesn't it? It's ridiculous. It's a stumbling block to Jews. They could never put together their concept of a Messiah, a Saviour who's crucified. How could a military rescuer suffer the defeat of death? The message of a cross, well it's foolishness to Gentiles. For the Greeks, God is spirit, he's aloof, he's above the earth. He doesn't come down and get his hands dirty. He certainly doesn't lower himself to death. doesn't make sense that God would die. We've certainly seen Christianity ridiculed in Australia in the last couple of years, haven't we? Uh, regularly ridiculed uh, with the same-sex marriage debate, uh, now free to, uh, debates about gender identity and freedom of religion. Go back a few years beyond that and the, the place of women in society and how can the Bible say certain things. Uh, you've got rational, intelligent, popular, funny, articulate people ridiculing Christianity. They see it as old-fashioned, out of date, irrelevant, foolish. But verse 21 says that's the way God designs it. God's plan is that you can never understand God's ways when you begin with human understanding. When you come to God with the pride that says, God, I have to be able to understand him completely before I will accept it. He has to fit my categories. He must squeeze himself into my box, otherwise he's not real. Doesn't work that way. Instead, God's plans begin with something else. Doesn't begin with human wisdom. Doesn't begin with human categories. Look at the great news of verse 24. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see the necessary criteria? It's not being rational or intelligent. It's not being popular or funny or articulate. You just need to be called. Which begins with God. God is the one who does it, who calls people. He's the one who enables people to recognise. That's what the second half of chapter 2 is all about. Because The message of the cross isn't really foolish, it just looks foolish when you look at it from a human point of view. Verse 6 of chapter 2, it it talks about how the cross is wisdom to those who are mature. Verse 10 talks about how it's been revealed by God's spirit. He's the only way you can understand the things of God. So what does all of that mean? Where does the rubber hit the road? That means when I'm preparing uh, to preach, uh, when I'm reading and making notes and reading commentaries, if I'm only doing that stuff and not praying, then I'm wasting my time. If I'm not praying that God's Spirit will help me to understand, help me to speak it, help you to understand and to believe it and to live it, then I'm wasting my time because it's God who does all of that. If I come with my human understanding it won't get anywhere because it's not God's way. Now I know know that and yet in my temptation when time is short I do what I think probably we all do. We we rush out and we do and we work hard and we we think that if we can do it, uh, it depends on us. But God says it takes his spirit to see his wisdom it takes his spirit to see the power of a broken body. It takes his spirit to see wisdom in giving a life up. It goes against human intuition but, but sometimes we catch a glimpse of the wisdom and the power that comes through sacrifice. Perhaps you've seen the, the movie The Bridge Over the River Quiet it comes from a book called The Miracle on the River Kwai, written by Ernest Gordon, a British Army officer. Uh, It's about Allied prisoners of war who built the Thai Burma Railway for the Japanese in the Second World War. Uh, He describes a time of utter misery and suffering, thousands dying of tropical diseases, malnutrition, exhaustion, guards who beat the the prisoners to death. Uh, For most of the war, the camp had been a place of survival of the fittest, selfishly grab whatever you could to survive. Uh, But all that turned around when at the end of one day a work group returned, their shovels, the guard counted them and found them one short. He demanded to know what had happened to the missing shovel. Uh, Gordon writes, He began to rant and rave, working himself into a fury and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he shrieked and aimed his rifle at the prisoners. At that moment one man stepped forward. The guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while everyone watched. When they returned to camp the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. He would sacrificed his life for many. On the surface it seemed like a foolish waste of life. It seemed for nothing. It achieved nothing. But as the story continues, we begin to see something of the power and the wisdom that comes in sacrifice. That one act began to change hearts. Prisoners were inspired uh, to show an attitude of you first rather than me first. The sick began to be cared for rather than abandoned. The dead were buried with honour rather than just bodies piled up. A library was formed, courses were taught, plays were staged, an orchestra was formed. Camp conditions hadn't changed, but sacrifice had brought meaning. Uh, Gordon describes the situation, Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity and creative faith on the other hand were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in the truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. And it had all all begun with that act of weakness and foolishness and sacrifice. But in God's wisdom, that had been turned into wisdom and power. That changed. Now, if that was true for human sacrifice... How much more true is it of the work of Christ, the perfect God-man who died in our place, who didn't just inspire us to change, but who changed us through his Spirit, who gave us righteousness and made us righteous and gave us life. The conclusion is there in verse 25. God's plans that seem foolish Turn out to be wiser than man's wisdom and stronger than man's strength. Paul's made a case uh, about strength, God's strength, when it comes to the message. Uh, Now he gives a couple of personal examples to illustrate this idea of strength in weakness. Firstly, he points to the Corinthians themselves. Verse 26, he says, Brothers, God called you. What were you like? Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. You weren't a bunch of VIPs, you were just normal. Now Paul could have stopped there and he probably would have been better if he had, I think, but he he kept going, he he just pushed it. Verse 27, uh, they weren't, he doesn't just describe what they weren't, he describes what they were, he calls them foolish and weak, and lowly, and despised, and nothings. But Paul's point is not to do with the Corinthians themselves. His point is to do with God. But God chose them anyway. And do you notice why? God chose the foolish things of the world, that's the Corinthians, to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. The lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify to cancel out, to turn to zero the things which are something. Just the way he's always done, all the way through the Bible. He destroys wisdom, he cuts it off at the knees, he refuses to be known by the world's wisdom. And you see why in verse 29? So that no one may boast before him. He chooses those who recognise their weakness who come to God with open hands and empty pockets. Jesus said it, unless you accept the kingdom of God like a little child, you can't enter it. How do children accept things? Well, they never do a deal or worry about the, the what's going to be paid, do they? They assume, they presume They don't expect to pay for services rendered. Thanks for cooking, let me just fix you up for that Dad. They don't do it like that, do they? That's the only terms that we can come to God under, with no boasting, but with expectation, with empty hands. Gough Whitlam was once asked what he thought God would say to him when they met in heaven. Uh, Whitlam replied that he didn't know but he assured the interviewer that he would treat God as an equal. Now, that may have been tongue-in-cheek, he may have been serious, but I want to suggest that there are plenty of people who have that exact same attitude, even if they don't put it quite so boldly. If they were to die tonight and God were to ask them why he should let them into heaven, many people would instinctively answer, because I, because I am a good person, because I am better than Betty, because I'm generous, because I've never had a speeding fine." I deserve it. That's boasting before God. God wants to cut that away. He'll have none of it. He chooses zeros before heroes so that when he does we might see nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. That's the Corinthians. Paul's got a second example. Paul himself is a nothing. Chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Not only was his message about a weak and foolish crucified Jesus, but his method of delivering that was weak and foolish. It wasn't polished. There was no slick show. In fact, far from power and pizzazz, it was fear and fumbling. On a human level, it seemed he was destined to fail. But what he did have in verse 4 was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because God used that simple message uh, delivered simply to powerfully save people, to drag them from darkness to light, from death to life. God loves to do it that way. He loves to use a simple message and a trembling simple messenger, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. Do you remember the argument last week Some of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow follow Cephas, I follow Jesus. Don't trust men. Trust God. Trust God. He loves to use messages that are simple and messengers that are simple so that our faith may rest on God rather than ourselves. And so God wants me to spend more time in prayer. He wants you to spend more time in prayer for your non-Christian friends and family. He wants us to have prayer meetings that happen more often and that are fuller because those things show that our faith rests on God's power rather than on our words or our energy or our strategy. And God wants to see humility. God wants to see thankfulness because all that we have and all that we are comes from God and not from ourselves. The end of chapter 1, verse 30, he's the one we need to focus on. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus. not because of you. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is righteousness, holiness and redemption. It's all from him. He's chosen us. He's given us his spirit to understand his message. He's connected us to Jesus. And all that we have is because of Jesus. We're righteous. We're redeemed. We're rescued. But it's interesting. While we may have no grounds to boast, there is one thing we should boast about. We should boast in the Lord. We should rejoice. We should glory in Jesus We should shake our heads in amazement. We should sing his praises with smiles on our face because we are nothing more than weak and foolish zeros. But God has chosen lowly things and given us everything. And when we begin to get that, it'll be the end of pride. We'll shrug our shoulders when it comes to competition or comparison. It'll become more important to humbly represent and imitate Jesus than to win an argument or a competition. When we begin to understand the wisdom of the power and the power of the cross, we'll begin to rejoice when others succeed and we don't. We'll begin to thank God when other people and ministries and churches are growing. We won't mind when we get overlooked or come second, or get laughed at. And we'll be content and grateful because of what we have and who we are in Jesus. And it'll be the end of our striving of seeking our own independence. We'll learn to rest more and more on God's power and less on our own wisdom. Does all of that begin to sound a little bit like God's true wisdom? real life, God's true strength. May we have the heart and the eyes to see it and the hands to live it. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to see the wisdom of these words uh, that is so countercultural in our society. Help us to see it, help us to live it and love it that you might receive the honour and the glory. Amen.